It is Tuesday, May 4th, 2021. The Macro Setup joined, as always, by my dear friend, Dan Nathan. This episode brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Nadex, the premier exchange in North America for binary options, call spreads, and Dan will tell you later. Knockouts, Dan Nathan, how are you? I'm doing well, guy. Happy May 4th. You know what that day is? Yeah, it's May 4th, Dan. No, May the 4th be with you, big guy. That's what we're Oh, my God. Please don't do that. Although I will tell you, Dan, that Richard Dreyfuss absolutely crushed it in that movie. He's been great in everything. He was in Jaws, obviously, stole the movie along with Robert Shaw. But he was so good in, what was that movie? The Extraterrestrial, right? The E.T.? Oh, my goodness. I mean, you're just mixing up every space movie from the late 70s. Because you know why I'm mixing them up? Because they all suck. But you know what doesn't suck, Dan? the macro setup and talk to me what are you looking at dan nathan well it's interesting we got to go back a week you know we had that fed meeting and there wasn't a great deal of anticipation that they were going to change from their dovish stance here but um our friend muhammad el arian you know from alliance and i think he's over at the cambridge school now that's a fancy school guy that makes sense for for a guy like him but he wrote this Bloomberg op-ed last week, it was entitled, The Fed Should Start Tapering, But It Won't. What do you make of that? But It Won't. And he has some good reasons. And listen, he's saying that they should be following pace with the Bank of Canada. They should kind of take their foot off the pedal just a little bit here. That way they can avoid the sort of taper tantrum that we saw back in 2013, 2014, um, causing, you know, kind of dislocations in the market when it happens all at once, I guess. But they won't, but they can't is what the real, I mean, Fed should start tapering, but it can't. I mean, won't, can't, doesn't matter. The fact is, there's no way they can do it. They painted themselves into such a corner. And this is something we've been talking about here on the macro setup. We talk about it all the time on Fast Money. There's no way out. It's like that Kevin Costner movie with Sean Young, if you remember, that was actually filmed in Georgetown. There's absolutely no way out for them. And it's unfortunate. And what's going to wind up happening is there's going to be a huge there's going to be an episodic event. It's going to last for a period of time. They'll come in and try to bail things out again. But the reality is uh, the corner they've painted themselves in is so narrow now that any misstep is going to cause a little bit of a market reaction. That's what we're seeing. And why won't it, by the way? Why won't the Fed start tapering? Because they know what it's going to do to the market. They've become enslaved to the Dow Jones Industrial Average and to the NASDAQ. And you can at me all you want. But their dual mandate continues to be to make sure the markets go higher, both markets. And they're winning on that front, but they're losing on all others, Dan. Yeah, you know, I you know, I disagree on I that. I know you do. That's what makes markets. No, I, I know. I mean, listen, I I think that you're right in the fact that like if they had told you in the past that they don't really care about what the stock market does, that that is not true. But I don't believe, you know, that they are really solving to equity market outcomes. I think that the wealth effect from stocks and related securities is definitely important. And I think that they don't want to cause volatility events. But I think this is the point that LRN is making. I, I do think it's interesting, though, that, you know, every day that you see a headline like that, where, you know, like an esteemed economist is saying that they should be kind of moving towards more normalization, you're starting to see, or not starting to see, we've been talking about it, you've been talking about it for months here, you're starting to see some pretty 
dramatic headlines about commodity shortages. Just this morning in the New York Times, you see that right there. Widespread commodity shortage raise inflation fears. I think they've already raised, you could put a D on that, that could be past tense. And this article goes on to talk about, it's not just things like lumber and copper and stuff like that, but it's also microchips. And we're seeing, you know, we saw stop down in production of automobiles. We're going to see that across a lot of different consumer electronics because of the shortages. Now, here's the one thing, Guy, that I think is unique about what the Fed is trying to solve for right here, the pandemic and the disruption of supply chains and then the trade war that was going on before that, that's a unique change of, of, of really what they have to deal with, in my opinion. They don't have to deal with it, though. It's not in their purview to deal with supply chains. I mean, supply chains, by definition, should be transitory. That, to me, they want to talk about supply chains disruption being transitory. That's fine. I'd be on board with that. All the other stuff is nonsense. And by the way, why, why do I think they're solving for the market? And I know I, it sounds glib when I say it. I'll tell you exactly why. Because 73% of our economy is driven by consumer spending. Consumers spend money when they feel good about things. They feel good about things when they see the stock market going higher every day. Not to suggest that everybody owns stocks. Far from it, by the way. But the one metric that people look at to sort of gauge the economy is the stock market. When the stock market goes up every day, they make the jump saying the economy must be good. If the economy must be good, maybe I can go and buy that Starbucks or go buy a car or all those different things. When the stock market goes down in a precipitous way, like we've seen a number of times over the last few years, consumer spending stops on a dime. And that's when people get concerned. That's why the Fed solves right. for the market stands. Except for the fact that we're in, again, a very unique situation where there's this huge wealth transfer, you know, given the, the relief funds for the pandemic and consumer saving rates are at all time highs. There's trillions of dollars that are waiting to be spent. So that, I think that's what's really um, unique about this time. So As what it, better time than now? What better time than now to yeah. start to move well, things, right? What better time than yeah. now to start to move it and normalize rates and reduce the balance sheet and let people put that money that you're talking about to work in other things. Makes a lot of sense to me. What exactly are they waiting for? And I'm getting a bit exercised here. Yes, you and are. And I'll say it. I've said it on the show. I've written about it. And I'll say it here for the umpteenth time amongst the many villains of the 21st century. And there are a lot of them. Central bankers will go down in the top five of that list. And I would actually put it higher but I want to give myself a little bit of wiggle room there, Dan. Okay. Nathan. All right. And I, I, I understand. Okay, boomer. Okay, I, I, boomer. I, I, I kind of I generally disagree with that, but that's fine. If you want to talk about villains, though, this next headline that we have, and we've been kind of uh -huh. intimating to this a little bit, you know, we haven't really thought about geopolitical risk as it relates to markets. And it feels like a very long time, but here's a whole group of villains. If you look at Putin over there in Russia, you know, there's obviously some concern about like troop movements in, in Ukraine. We know that. Um, so the G7 is meeting, they're talking about some of these instances. We know that the Chinese are looking to start a fight with the Ta uh, the Taiwanese. We know that mm -hmm. Iran is really, they've gone back to kind of, um, you know, kind of uh, working on their nuclear program, North Korea, who knows what the heck is going on. There. There's a lot of villains over there. And so I think it, it'll be interesting to see if President Biden is tested on the geopolitical front anytime soon. I think the most dramatic one would be obviously China and Taiwan. And if you talk about supply chain disruptions, that's where you would have it. Like if you think about chip shortages, can you imagine what would happen if there was really some sort of situation, you know, a, a real geopolitical situation over there? 
NG would not be good. And it's not if President Biden is going to be tested. It's how he reacts when he's being tested. That, to me, is what the market is waiting for. And it remains to be seen. But you're right, Dan. There are villains all across the globe. And what's going on? I mean, again, things that you talked about have been concerns for the last 8, 12, 16 years, China notwithstanding. But with that, it hasn't seemed to care. Now, will the to the laundry list of things it should be worried about? Absolutely. Will it? Well, today it seems to be. Um, but listen, we've seen these sell-offs before. They've been short-lived. They've always been, uh, the buyers have always sort of stepped in and taken us to the next level. We'll see what happens now. But again, headwinds in terms of geopolitical, absolutely real, and they don't get solved. Hey, far from it, by the way. Yeah. All right. Well, let's hit some charts here. You know, you just mentioned the market's down today a little Love bit. Love the charts. Yeah, Love no, the charts. I, I can't remember the last time the S&P 500 was down 1% as we speak <laughs> right now. That's going on. You know, you had that breakout. I mean, man, it like back, look at that uptrend that we have, you know, from the May 2020 low there. It kind of held it. It had that one period right before the election where it broke down um, a little bit behind, uh, below that, but then it's mm-hmm. really kind of just been a steady 45 degree angle there. That low, you know, 37.50 back in early March, that seems like ages ago, because it went straight from 37.50 to 4,200, what felt like a pretty near parabolic move. You have that breakout level guy at like 39.50-ish or something like that. That is the intersection of that one year uptrend well above the 200 day moving average at 30. 665. I think a retest of 4,000 would not only be healthy, it might really help set the stage for the back half of this year. If you're kind of trying to do two things here, you're trying to normalize what is this mid to high single digits GDP growth off of the V, right, that we had last year. And then thinking about, okay, that's going to come down, decelerate meaningful in the back half of the year. But it's still really good here for stocks, right, to not discount that too much. We need to see a little bit of a pullback. You agree with that? 100%. And we've had over the last, I think, three weeks, four weeks, we've had three different major economists, people that people respect, uh, Savita Submaranian from Bank of America, Mike Wilson from Morgan Stanley, Tony Dwyer, have talked about the need or what they see to be a 10 to 20% decline in the market over a short period of time. And that lines up exactly with what you're saying. I mean, it lines up with the 200-day moving average, which comes in right around 3,700 or so by the time we get there. And that would be about a 10, 11% move from these levels, which makes a lot of sense. And you know, if you're bullish on the market, which 99% of the people want to be, obviously, um, you want to see a move like that. Yeah, it's going to be painful and yeah, it's going to be dramatic. And at a certain point, it's going to be pretty scary. But I absolutely think it's necessary if you want to see a rise in the back half. If we just continue to meander around these levels, again, I've said it a number of times, the higher we go, the more scared I get. You got to let some steam out of this hot air balloon. And then it makes sense for a lot of different reasons, Dan. Yeah, it, the S&P 500, you know, seems to be masking a lot of different things that are going on. We're going to hit some of those pockets of, of what I think were, you know, prior exuberance that the air is coming out a little bit. Let's move to the NASDAQ 100, though, Guy. I mean, we know that the FMAGA complex, those five stocks, Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, make up, you know, over $8 trillion in combined market cap and nearly 45% or almost 50% 
of this uh, index of 100 stocks here. It's interesting, though, because you saw that move from late March, right, into that earnings season in April. Expectations actually got really high. I think people were thinking that the underperformance of some of those mega cap names was likely to be, you know, I mean, rewarded in what were tremendous quarters all across the board. I think you and I can agree on that, but it's interesting. It kind of held in there. If you look at the NASDAQ 100 in and around, as you would say, either side of 14,000 here. And we just broke kind of hard today. The Lions draw themselves, as our friend Carter Braxton says. Sure. Look at that support dating back to that September 2nd high. It lines up right near those March lows and right um, near that 200-day moving average. This is all you need to know. We say this a lot as well, and you've heard it from people on TV. People write about it. Good news, bad price action. You can't deny it. That's what we're seeing. Good news. Well, the Amazon quarter was pretty ridiculous. Uh, good news. The Apple quarter was historic. Uh, and look at the way those both those stocks have traded in the wake of those earnings releases. Not particularly good. And that coincides with the chart that Dan just has drawn here. We haven't had a meaningful test of the 200-day moving average in NASDAQ, in this chart specifically, or this index specifically, in over a year. Uh, and we're significantly above it. You know, when, when you talk about standard deviations, it's not a healthy thing. So can you see a move of this magnitude back to that level, the 200-day moving average, which, by the way, coincides with that prior all-time high way back last summer? Absolutely. And I would say, once again, that would be an extraordinarily healthy thing for the market. Painful, yes. Healthy without question, Dan Nathan. Yeah, and I would also say that, you know, we talk about those two stocks. We have charts of Apple. Um, let's just hit this one really quickly. And you see let's. this thing has been range bound, you know, like literally since uh, early September. And I don't think that's a particularly unhealthy thing when you think about it. You know, Apple and Amazon make up $4 trillion in combined market cap. We know that they're absolutely killing it. I mean, the, like, 54% year-over-year revenue growth for Apple. I mean, it's truly astounding when you think about their margins, which they just raised um, their guidance there. I think they're like 42% or something like oh. that. They take like 90-some percent of the gross margin in the entire smartphone business. I mean, they're absolutely killing it. But I guess the point is, who's the incremental buyer, right? And that's really what happens here. So to me, I think the Apple is really interesting. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think if it trades down to 122, that 200-day moving average, find support maybe in that 115 to 110 range. I mean, that's fine. I guess you might argue, Guy, the longer they go sideways and the more likely we are for a broad market sell-off, does do you have the risk that uh, that underperformance then starts to lead the way to the downside? Yes. And, you know, I'll say again, I said it on the show, the show being CNBC's Fast Money, the night of Apple earnings, when that release came out, and it was a staggering release. You just said all the metrics. But when the stock was, you know, 138, and Melissa yeah. said, what do you think? I said, the stock should be, given this quarter, given what the market's done, the stock should be a lot higher. As a matter of fact, we should be testing the prior all-time high, which I think is 145.09 or thereabouts if memory serves. And we really didn't get close. And what I said was, you know, it's something to watch. And if we can't sort of test those levels, it doesn't augur particularly well. And now here we are in terms of what's going on with the price. Again, everybody talks about, you know, owning that trading Apple. Yeah. I get it. If you look at it, that's been right, except that, we have seen significant trough, you know, peak to trough declines over the last five or six years in this name specifically. And maybe we're on the verge of one now. The levels that you bring up are exactly right, Dan. And we're about to, it seems like, finally test that 200-day moving average, which we yeah. did, 
Obviously, we did it back in February or so. It looks like we're going to do it again. Let's see what happens if and when we get there. Yeah, and then let's go to the Amazon chart really quickly because this one, again, has also consolidated. I mean, it's truly astounding, Guy. When you draw two horizontal lines and you look at that double top dating back to the intraday high on September 2nd and then that intraday high um, last week, it, it really is pretty amazing. And then if you go back and you look at that green line, you look at that support, that was that September low. Mm-hmm. And then that was that March low. And so, you know, the 200-day is right there at 3,200. The high was just below um, 3,600. And then that double bottom low was probably like 2825. Mm-hmm. I think to your eye, you would say that 200 day is kind of the midpoint, but that stock is going to remain range bound. I don't really see what the catalyst is other than an absolute broad market explosion to break it out. And I think it's also important to remember, this is Jeff Bezos last quarter as the CEO. So the new CEO has obviously been with the company and steward, you know, one of their most amazing products with AWS for the last 15 years is likely to put his own stamp on this company in the not so distant future. And I think it goes back, you know, go back to 2010, 11, when Tim Cook was um, taking over for Steve Jobs, first in medical leave, but then um, as just, you know, like helming it for good, he put a big stamp on that company. He started a cash return program in 2012 that you ready for this guy to date has returned a half a billion dollars in you know in dividends and in um no i think it's probably more than 500 billion a half a trillion that's right half a trillion trillion. no that's okay t's b's i mean yeah no it's it's a it's a stat it's a beyond staggering number without question but your point about new ceos wanting to put his or her stamp on a company absolutely but they're growing pains associated with that dan and i think you're seeing it here this is by the way folks for you playing our home game it was a textbook double bottom in terms of the green line that Dan drew. And it's actually a textbook double top in terms of that red line. And I do think we're going to do that 3,200 or so, the 200-day moving average, which is effectively a 50% correction of this range. And its stock has been trading sideways yeah. since September. I mean, just look at it. There's no denying it. It's been trading sideways on a broader market tape that's been, I don't want to say parabolic, but it's been extraordinarily strong. It's telling you something. And oh, by the way, just one more metric. And Dan hates it when I do this, but the operating margin number for Amazon was ridiculous, ridiculous in a good way. And that should have really taken the stock to the next level. And it did for about an eight hour period, uh, but that eight hour period wasn't enough. And now here we are meandering. 3,200 is your test. See what happens when and if we get there, Dan. Yeah, I think that those two names in particular, though, I think investors are saying to themselves, maybe it's as good as it gets for a while. Let's go to a name, though, that you highlighted NVIDIA um, and just real quickly talking about the chips. I mean, again, this looked like it was also range bound like those other two, but this is now the second largest um, chip stock by market cap here. It did make a new all-time high. It had that massive move into its earnings. Seems range bound. But what does it really say to you, Guy, just on more of a macro level um, about what's going on in the chip business? We know that Intel's new CEO mentioned the other day that this chip shortage literally will take two years to actually kind of replenish that sort of thing. Um, any thoughts? My thoughts are this. I mean, you think about the extraordinary good news behind this entire sector. And it really sort of, I, you know, I guess the pinnacle of it was when we started hearing in earnest about all these chip shortages. And by the way, almost, not necessarily in terms of NVIDIA, but it really coincided with the top of the move in the entire space. I mean, that's somewhat concerning. And the reversal in NVIDIA off their earnings release, again, is something to keep an eye on. I mean, 
But it's not just NVIDIA. We saw it with Qualcomm, which reported an extraordinary quarter by their standards. Stock traded up to about 146. Look at it now. AMD, same thing. Intel, same thing. I can rattle off the names. Yeah. They all pretty much the same chart. And that's got to be concerning because this has been the group that has really been the, I, I, I want to say it's one of the pillars of this move higher in the NASDAQ and you're losing one of those legs. You have to be concerned by yeah. that, Dan. Yeah, I agree. And, and so, you know, we call this the macro setup. We're doing some micro here because sometimes you have to go from the bottoms up, right, to, to kind of uh, meet in the middle. Sure and you do. Gotta make a macro thesis. I'm going to hit a few charts here. This is going to be a speed round guy really quickly here. Look oh, at like Zoom. This, this is the one-year chart. This was obviously deemed to be a huge winner of the pandemic. You know, what I find really interesting about this thing is down nearly 50% from its October highs, it topped out weeks before we even got the vaccine news. So, you know, like the, the, the fix was in on this one here. And I just think keep an eye on that 300 level. Nice round number. I think it'll say something about sentiment. Another name. And I'm going to let you speak to this one, guy. Well, hold on and zoom real quick. Don't yeah. go back yeah. real quick. This, yeah. if you go back and look, I mean, almost to the day, yeah. this sort of peaked out right around the time you started hearing all the vaccine news, which is not coincidental, by the way. And the other flip end of this, now you have Microsoft um, sort of in the in the cross. Zoom is in the cross as a Microsoft. Why yeah. do I say that? Because Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, his comp package is now linked to how successful that Teams is. And Teams is the big rival for Zoom. Just something to keep in mind. And oh, by the way, Jamie Dimon today announced that, you know what? I know I'm going to upset a lot of people, but people are coming back to work at JP Morgan in the very near future. I mean, that obviously does not augur particularly well for Zoom either. Anyway, Dan, please continue. Yeah, no, and then here's another one, Peloton, and obviously this is more consumer-focused, but you see that this thing, you know, well off of its highs from January here, I think that high was about 170 or 171, and here we are just below $95. You see that nice round number there, um, you know, sitting on that support. It was the November low. It was the March low. Um, let's see what happens there, but not too different of a story for back to work. And then the last one I just wanted, and these are really, I'm just speaking of these from a sentiment standpoint. I mean, Tesla at one point off of its 2020 lows was up over a thousand percent. You know, its mm -hmm. market cap was near 800 billion. Um, you know, there's always a lot of funny business going on there, at least with Musk and what's going on. But, you know, it's important to remember that EVs, electric vehicles, are less than 2% of global market share. These guys have a ton of that market share, but a lot of competition's coming on here. That uptrend from that early March low is pretty interesting. The stock's sitting on it right now. That breakout level at 500 after it was announced, the S&P 500 in November, kind of interesting here. So keep an eye on that one from a sentiment standpoint. I think 100% right, Dan. Tesla is one of those bellwether stocks in terms of market sentiment. And listen, when they reported the other day, the stock traded down, I think, 718. And Mel asked me, what do I think? And I said, this time tomorrow, which is probably going to be a new segment on Fast Money, yep. this time tomorrow, you're talking about a $750 stock and anything but. I think it closed the next day at 704 and you're pointing out where it's trading now. It had a little bit of a bounce over the last couple of days, trading days, that is, but yep unsustainable. It's not holding. And that's the first time you've seen that in a very long time in terms of Tesla and the price action. Yeah. And, and again, we're bringing it up because of sentiment. I mean, earlier this year when when GameStop and, and you know, stonks and all this stuff was going crazy, oh. it, it looked like unusually positive sentiment in a lot of things. One of those areas were SPACs. And here's a SPAC index here. 
that's down almost 25% from its mid to late February highs here. I think that's really important. We're seeing money just not pouring into them the way they were. And it wasn't just institutional money, but it was also retails, you know, after the deal, the deals were announced. So keep an eye on SPAC sentiment. And the other one is IPOs. I mean, people forget. I mean, SPACs were catching a lot of the headlines every day, but, you know, there were some massive IPOs in the last six months, Snowflake, uh, C3 AI, there was DoorDash and Airbnb and Coinbase just recently. So that SPAC index also down about 25% from its all coincident, highs. by the way, not to interrupt, but all coincident with all the great news. I mean, this is all lines up with the peak news in terms of vaccines and stuff. Again, not coincidental. Listen, the vaccine rollout has been tremendous, but it's not coincidental that we got really all the the pinnacle of the good news, like this is what's happening, folks. It's rolling out, fully yep. vaccinated by the summer type of thing. That's when the market, for all intents and purposes, all the things you're pointing out, that's when those things topped out. Something to keep in mind on this macro setup Tuesday, Dan. Yeah, and I'll just I'm gonna kick this over back to you guys. So I have a chart of the XME. This is an ETF, the materials. Oh, and yeah. This is a five-year chart, and I think it's really interesting because it was early this year that you know there was this massive breakout to new like you know two-year highs, but it's kept on going. And so I guess what what I'm trying to say here is that maybe some of that irrational exuberance has come out of some of those other areas, but now it really is working into that what we started this whole conversation about were those themes about inflation and the Fed's willingness to let it run. So you have the XME, you know a lot of those names that are in there. Um, And then we also have copper. We'll just go to the copper just to show you how dramatic of a breakout. Now, obviously, there's a lot of copper-related names in that XME. Talk to us about these industrial commodities. And can they keep going like this? This is insane. Yes, is the answer, in my opinion. You know, you're at nine-year highs now in copper. Can it keep going? Absolutely. Because I do believe we're in the early innings of this. I, I, I rarely use the term, but commodity super cycle. Yeah. And why is that? Well, I mean, look around the planet and see what's going on. There are a lot of places reopening, right? And you, start, you saw travel restrictions eased in Europe as well. I mean, that's all very bullish for the things that we're talking about right now. And that genie's out of the bottle. Can it do a back and fill at some point? Absolutely. But is the trajectory from the lower left to the upper right in all these names, Freeport McMahon, U.S. Steel, Cleveland yeah. Cliffs, Newmont Mining, you know, all the names that we talk about all the time, absolutely. And valuations haven't gotten ridiculous. And oh, by the way, the commodity, the only, what's secure for higher prices and commodities, Dan? I know you know the answer to this. If you don't, I will answer it. The cure for higher prices is higher prices. And we haven't gotten to that level yet. And there's still a lot of room to go. So can the XME continue to grind higher? Yes. Is inflation uh, amongst us and right around us? Absolutely. Has the Fed acknowledged it? No. And the fun thing about the Fed is, you know, they'll only talk about the things that back up their dogma and their mandate. They won't talk about the other things that are staring them in the face. And did I start ranting about the Fed? Yes. And am I ending it ranting about the Fed? Clearly I am. Yeah, I would just like point people back to the last commodity super cycle we saw following the, the global financial crisis in 2009, 10, 11. You know, that was really about um, China and the stimulus there. And you saw the similar sort of moves. I mean, I don't know on a percentage basis, but the charts look kind of similar. And what did they do for the years following? They topped out in late 2010, 11, and they spent years going down. So I, I'm not a buyer of these things. I don't believe in super cycles. You know, another super cycle, this smartphone 
the super cycle. People talk about it to justify their Apple price targets and all the other crap. But at the end of the day, you know, we don't see the, the sorts of spurts in demand from one phone to the next. So I'm, I'm a seller of super cycles. But here's a super cycle, the crypto super cycle guy. Oh, we now all of a sudden you're a buyer of super cycle. You, you hate this one, but you love the crypto super cycle. Well, listen, I, you know, listen, this this seems to be what, what the, the true believers think is just a fundamental shift in the way technology is working right now. And it's going to find its way. Just like Mark Andreessen said, maybe, I don't know, seven, eight, 10 years ago that software is eating the world. You know, this is a form of software that is, is eating you know the the, the the crypto ecosystem is now two trillion and so if you were going to count 2.3 actually if you want to okay, get down to brass if you were going to follow if you were going to follow the trajectory of let's just say software in the personal computing age i mean this has you know ages and ages to go um i will just say this here's the bitcoin chart it's interesting that it's up 100 percent year to date already after a little more than four months but it's well off those highs about ten thousand off the highs and it has not kept pace with what guy it is Ethereum. Not the Ethereum, the ETH, the Ether. Um, you know, this one has literally just gone parabolic. It's gone from like 2,200 to 3,500 in a week or so. Um, lots of things going on there. This, this change in the protocol to a proof of stake. Lots of interesting things in the DeFi being built on top of that. It just seems universal optimism there. To me, I think it would be very healthy for this thing to pull back towards 2,500. Um, and that could be the case very soon. But mm -hmm. keep an eye on that because I think all those things, the SPACs, the stonks, right? Like the, the IPO names, the high valuation. If you were to all see them go down together and the sort of deleveraging like we saw in Bitcoin a few weeks ago, that might be bad for the broader markets here. So that's my little uh, riff on the crypto guy, as you yeah, like to say. I, no, I like that. And we, we probably should have Brian Kelly back at some point on yeah. the macro setup because he's been talking about, you know, everybody talks about Bitcoin and he was early, obviously, to that. But he's absolutely shifted his focus to the importance of Ethereum for everything you're talking about. You know, it's sort of the building blocks for everything that's going on in the space. And there are a lot of people out there, you know, $2.3 trillion market cap of the space, of the sector, whatever you want to call it. There are a lot of people that think that will go north of the $10 trillion that gold currently trades at. And if, if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. So you can do the math. I mean, we're 20%, 23% of where a lot of people think this is going. And you can sort of chop it up any way you want. But I'm glad you brought up Ethereum. And I do think we should have BK, the yeah. crypto the baller in the right, space back. That, that was a great segue to the next one, guy, which is gold. And it felt yeah. like, you know, like, you know, listen, there's been fits and starts with gold. I think you have been on record saying since those highs in August is really when you saw Bitcoin really making that move. And we just talked about Ethereum, but I think that there was a lot of like crypto believers that really think that, you know, Bitcoin's settling in on that store of value, not as a currency, not as a smart contract. I know that there's some protocols, you know, really working on that and smart contracts at Bitcoin to compete with Ethereum. But what is your take on gold? Because did we just see that transfer where people are coming to the conclusion, you know what, Bitcoin is better gold? It's interesting if you think about it. I mean, when, when this topped out, when gold topped out, you figure the market cap of everything we talked about in crypto is maybe 800. But put it this way, you're probably seeing a one and a half trillion dollar rise in market cap of, of the crypto world, right? And that's probably in retrospect, it's taken away from what should be moving into gold. And, and if you look at it, it's coincided with this move lower in gold. I don't think the two are related, but obviously if you look at it, 
Um, there are a lot of people that make the argument that they absolutely are. I do think that both can work. And I do think that gold is putting in a base here and we're going to see it higher. By the way, it is through that downtrend line that you drew. And I do think we're going to make a move towards December highs and we'll see what happens if and when we get there. I absolutely think we're going to see the highs we saw over last summer, but I'm clearly in the minority there. I think both can work, but I do think a sell-off in crypto is actually going to be positive for gold. So we'll see what happens, Dan. Yeah, I think those correlations will be really interesting to see because we, you know, we haven't seen a meaningful sell-off in the stock market, um, you know, since the I, I guess March of last year. And at that time, you know, crypto was very correlated to the stock market, right? And so here we are now where you know, gold has gone down, which you might have considered maybe not with the inflation issues, but where the stock market is trading. But Bitcoin, Ethereum and crypto in general um, has really kind of disconnected there. Um, let's go to rates, guy. We got two more charts here. This is 100 percent in your wheelhouse. You called for this move from 50 basis points to 1 percent, which we got at the end of last year. And then you said we're going to go from 1 percent to 2 percent. And we nearly got to 2 percent. But it seems like we're kind of consolidating at that breakdown level from last year, early March here. What's your take on rates here and how does it affect some of these other risk assets that we're talking about? Well, we got to 177 in the 10 year, which I guess is close, but not close enough. I mean, yeah. I really did think, I still think, by the way, we're going to head towards back towards 2%. Why do I think rates are sort of backing up from the 164 in the 10 year we recently saw? I think when the market, the broader market sells off, you do see a flight to quality in the form of bonds. Whether that's justified or not, I think that's what's going on. And to a certain extent, I think that's what we're seeing today. 151, as you mentioned, is sort of the bottom and it held there and bounced. That's probably what's going to happen again. But I think the flight to quality is misguided in terms of bonds. I think they're better places to be. And I think we're going to see that move up to 2% or so as we continue to see um, this inflationary data come out stronger and hotter. So it's just a foregone conclusion. What that means to the broader market, I think I know. Uh, but clearly, I haven't known because higher rates have not caused the market to sell up in a meaningful way. Maybe the move to 2% will. Yeah. And then lastly, on that, let, let's look at the Dixie, the U.S. dollar index. Um, you know, you've had a, a very nice call for the last year saying that you think it's going material lower. It did. It found some support just above those kind of five or six year highs on the Dixie at like 88 or something like that. You see that little uptrend um, that we've seen you know, really since the January lows, it, it bounced off of that just last mm -hmm. week here. Um, do you think when we finally, you think we finally break that and go meaningfully lower and really test that like kind of five-year, 10-year, $88 support range? I do because, listen, I mean, I'm not going to, it's not a political show, but everything that President Biden is talking about wanting to do and probably will be able to do in some way, shape or form is not positive for the U.S. dollar, in my opinion. Listen, there are a lot of MMT people out there that think it's absolutely positive for the U.S. dollar, and they can wax poetic as to why they think it. I'm not one of those people. You know, I do think we're going to take out that 88 level. And again, that's going to be extraordinarily positive, probably for crypto, but also for gold. And I do think it's going to coincide with rates going higher. And as you know, Dan, because I say it all the time, a lower dollar and higher rates is a what? WB, please help me. You know the answer is a... Which is brew. Which is brew. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate you playing our home game. So there you go. That's my view, dollar lower. And we're probably going to talk about it next week's macro setup that's yeah. going to be sponsored by IG with one of the guys or gals from Daily FX. And we're going to see what happens. Listen, this time next week, we'll be having a much different conversation in terms of where the dollar is.
Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, let's just kind of wrap things up here and kind of summarize a little bit. I mean, you know, you and I are not like just pounding the table bears on the stock market, but we think there's a lot of stuff going on under the hood that is really worth keeping an eye on. The Nasdaq's relative underperformance, the S&P 500 is really interesting. Um, I think the consolidation and some of the biggest names in in the market is pretty interesting. I think some of those pandemic winners um, really falling from grace. Keep an eye on the Tesla, which is like, you know, it's stonks and it's memes and it's crypto all wrapped up in one pretty package. It seems like that could kind of take a hit to sentiment broadly here. You know, rates hang in there. You know, the, the Dixie feels like it's ready to go lower. Um, gold, you think it's picking its head up a little bit. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on here. We try to keep this to 30 minutes, but there's just too much stuff going on, huh, guy? There's too much, there's too much stuff going on. And we're not trying to cause a widespread panic, which is then another band out of Athens, Georgia, along with, as Dan knows, REM. Dan, I know you know these things, right? You're I will tell you this. Widespread Panic mean, was the last band I saw live in late February. I think it was February 28th at the Beacon Theater to 2020, right before things shut down. There you go. Widespread Panic. Interesting. I mean, it, in some ways fitting, but that's it. I mean, that's this week's macro setup right Dan. You have any parting words you want me just to get us out of here? No, I mean, listen, you know, I think that um, I think it's one of those periods of time where it, it seems like there is a universal optimism that, you know, because that the, the economies are reopening or at least here in the U.S., um, that everyone's feeling a lot better year over year. When you think about the markets, I think sometimes it's important not to let that seep too much into your investment process. Process because it seems like a lot of people are on the same side of the boat here. And we know what usually happens when that is the case. There seems to be high levels of complacency, in my opinion, because we even talk about the VIX guy as a teenager. You know what I mean? So, you know, I think it's really, you know, be mindful here that, um, you know, this is not a, a great period of time, May and June for stock markets generally. VIX should be at legal drinking age. I'll let you figure out what that number is. Dan, that's been the macro setup brought to you by a presenting sponsor, Nadex, the premier U.S. exchange for binary options, call spreads, and Dan. Knockouts, my main man. Damn straight. See you next week. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the macro setup. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe in podcast stores so you never miss an episode. We'll see you next week.